Hi, everybody. Loud enough? Yep. Good. Hi, all you guys up there on the TV. I've been looking at you all a lot. I, I kind of, uh, TVs are hard to resist. You know, when there's a big TV, you always, your eyes go there. So I've been uh, aware of you a lot this week. I want to I continue to talk about Shoftim, and I completely realize that uh, it's old news already. We're supposed to be on Kitetsi, but we don't like Kitetsi, so. <laughs> we, the four of us seem to be universal, in universal agreement on, on our not liking Kitetsi so much, so more on Shoftim. Last time, I, I think I only talked about the first verse about establishing judges at the gates so that the land uh, that God, uh, uh, your God, is giving you will be ruled with justice. And then uh, the subsequent verses go into more detail about what this justice is supposed to look like and then uh, in chapter 16, verse 20, uh, which is the third verse of the Parsha, it says, this is pretty famous, I think, Tzedek, Tzedek, justice, justice you should pursue, that you may thrive and occupy the land that your God is giving you. So it doesn't just say justice. It says, justice, justice. The Torah is very, very economical means, can make a big impact. And so when it repeats justice twice, to me this is like a really big deal. This reverberates. Somebody could say, and I don't think they would be wrong, they could say, uh, a passion for justice. That's Judaism. It comes down to that. But not just justice uh, as a kind of a sort of, now we talk about justice, you know, almost like it's a form of vengeance. The satisfaction that we get knowing that our enemies and people who have done wrong have been punished as they should be, that's what we mean by justice most of the time. But of course we know that's not justice. Justice is something more than that. It's something uh, much bigger and much more noble than that. And, and I really do think that uh, it is understood in Torah that that does not only mean outer, in other words, social and political justice, but also inner justice. Uh, and we use the word in our prayers a lot to be aligned with the divine. That's justice to be aligned with. I always was impressed, Rabbi Lou used to use the word, which I always thought it was a weird use of the word, but he would always say flush with God. That's what he, that was justice for him, to be flushed, cleaving with God. And of course, this is our work this week. 
we're if if we're leading to the one side and therefore in that way unjust oh you don't have a beard today well, how about that I'm so distracted and shocked <laughs> I don't know what to think now <laughs> look at him without a beard can they see you they can't see that you why don't you go and like somehow get in front of the camera so they can see <laughs> No, really, you should get in front of the camera. This is a big thing. This is one of the biggest things that happened all week. See, he had a beard, now it's only the mustache. <laughs> Amazing. Yes, uh, clean shavenness is, is a virtue. <laughs> uh, yeah, so if you're leaning a little bit this way, and you're not just right this way it's you know maybe because of everything that's happened to you you don't even know you're leaning a little this way right you just it's just your body sit here all week breathe all week and little by little you're sitting up straight in other words justice in your body in your breath in your heart is what we're doing trying to align ourselves with our truest heart, which is godly. That's, in that sense, we were made in the image of God. Through sitting, through prayer, through paying attention, through mitzvot. It's a whole life, you know, all of life. We're aligning ourselves with this which we know is right and true and beyond really and truly what we can control and, and know. So justice in the heart, justice in the world. Inside, outside. Inside has to be rectified, but inside rectified and outside messed up is no good. Outside also has to be rectified. Outside fixed up will never work if inside is not rectified. I mean, you know, like I often think, after all the different political fixes we thought we fixed, <clears throat> and it didn't fix, you realize, you know, until human beings are better, the world's not going to be just. Human beings have to be better. You and I have to be better. Justice. Justice shall you pursue, that you may thrive and occupy the land that your God is giving you. Next comes a lot of stuff about what you should not do, <clears throat> which Torah is really good at, <clears throat> right? The stuff you should not do, and not casually not do, absolutely not do. You could say <clears throat> that Torah is to some extent hysterical, <laughs> really, really agitated on this question of what you should not do. Torah is not casual about that. Why is that? Did you ever think about that? Why is that? You know, if, if we have a tender sense of our tradition and its kindness and its goodness, and you know, what well, well, you can't deny, the, all the really drastic stuff in the Torah, why is that? I mean, don't we know 
that if you want to train somebody to be a certain way, even you know, a nice person or a good person, or even just to learn how to do something, the way to train them is not to like browbeat them and yell at them and screech at them, right? The way to train them is gently, affirmatively, oh, you're doing a good job, very nice. Maybe a little more like this. It wasn't so good today, but that's okay. You're a good, you know, that's not the way that Torah is approaching this question, no. God is yelling and screaming all the time. And the punishments are not small. Why is that? Maybe it's because Torah has such a powerful recognition of how deep our human tendencies toward ignorance and selfishness actually run. And they do run deep, right? Torah, one of the things that we love about it, I think, is that it is beautifully, if also sadly, realistic about the human condition. And the various drastic punishments that we read about here in Shoftim and in Kitetzi and so many other places in Torah, to me, are an expression of the actual determination and force that it takes to overcome injustice and selfishness within ourselves as well as in the outer world. I mean, we here, I think, are very nice people. But look at your own mind, you know? Right? It's full of defensiveness and fear and denial and arrogance and greed and all kinds of nasty stuff. And you're like ahead of the game in the general run of humanity, right? Even Sylvia has to celebrate the fact that she has a positive thought about the guy running backwards on the treadmill. And she's amazed by it because she knows that even Sylvia has a lot of you know, negative thoughts that would automatically come up, but she's rejoicing that in this case they didn't, and in many cases they don't. But, you know, Sylvia's not your average person. I think we all kind of get that. So, in other words, there's a lot to be overcome. So no wonder the Torah is so absolutely hysterical about this. You know, it's not just come to a nice retreat, breathe a little bit, it'll be fine. No, it's, it takes more than that. Who was, well, somebody was quoting the happiest uh, Tibetan monk in the world saying, it takes a lifetime. It does. It takes a lifetime. And it takes serious effort. And I think you really have to be fierce about it. You really have to be devoted. You really have to be, to some extent, you know, like the Torah, a little bit strict with yourself. No fooling around. You know, I really have to do this. The whole world depends on it. You have to keep it up. And, and this is the trouble, I think, with the way that people practice religion now. Basically, I mean, the world is full of religion, but basically it's not really that important. Right? 
It's not that important. People have important things to do. They have jobs, they have to take care of their family, uh, they have to be culturally relevant. Lots of things that people need to do. And that let's do religion also because it's a good thing to do. But it's not really that important. It's not really centrally important to people's lives. Even people who are regular synagogue or churchgoers or whatever, it's not that important to them. Mostly it's a social occasion, right? This is where the people we know hang out, so we see them there, blah, blah. But it's not that important to anybody. This is not Torah, right? In Torah, it is really important. I mean, that's what it's saying, right? This is really important. This is no fooling around. This is drastic. This is passionate. Nothing could be more important. Justice, justice shall you pursue. This is an urgent thing. It is the most important thing. Everything else in your life should be in service of this drastic imperative. It is literally, the Torah is a do or die book, right? Do or die. Now, I think it's not a good idea to be a hysterical fanatic. Let's not be hysterical fanatics. But at the same time, let us recognize that this is an urgent matter. I actually think that even now, in this world the way it is now, our spiritual lives ought to be at the absolute center of what we are doing. They should be more important than anything else. They should not be something nice on the periphery. And this week, we're living what it's like when the only thing you're doing is your spiritual practice. This is what it feels like. This is what we're doing this week. We're not doing the other stuff that we usually do. We are only about our practice this week. But it should be that way all the time, not just in retreats. Now, I'm not talking about you should be meditating, you know, eight hours a day or something like that, because meditation per se is not the point. One hour is good, two hours twice is good, three hours three times is good. A week's retreat is good, so let's do a month retreat. But that's not as good as a three-month retreat. What about an 18-month retreat? No, it's not like that at all. The meditation is not the point. The meditation, as I said, it helps a lot. It aligns our hearts. It opens us up because the world is constantly closing us down. So yeah, we need to do meditation or prayer or whatever it is we do. But even when we're not directly engaged in these activities, we need to be serious about our lives, serious about our spiritual practice all the time in everything we do, in every word we speak, in every thought that comes into our mind, in every choice that we make. And this is why well, we have this Elul period and this preparation for the holidays. And the holidays themselves are supposed to be about reminding us of how important this is and how serious it is. And the punchline of this whole thing comes in 
chapter 18, verse 13, which says, Tamid im You must be wholehearted with Yudhe And I consulted a number of different translations, and most of them do translate Tamid as wholehearted, which is more or less, I guess, what it means. Whole in the sense of in one piece, entire, sound, unimpaired, unblemished, integrity, maybe even innocence. The opposite of this, as Rabbi Lou mentions in his commentary, and this is real, is treif, to be torn, tattered, fragmented, that's what he says. And the Shema expresses this wholeness, as we were saying, you know. Echad doesn't mean like one as a philosophical concept as much as it means tamid. Shema, listen, you people who inevitably, because it's your nature, are going to have to struggle with your life, with your death, with your relationships, with your sense of meaning. Listen closely to your life. Listen fiercely in your deepest and inmost heart. And you're going to hear this. You're going to hear the wholeness of life. You're going to hear the wholeness, which is yud heh And align your hearts with this truth again and again and again. Be wholehearted. Don't be half-hearted. Live all the time with the wholeness of who you are and what you are. And there is really nothing more important than that in any person's life. And remember what it says after that. You should love Yudhe with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And you should take to heart these things that I'm telling you today. Today meaning now, in this moment, in every moment of your living. Take this to heart and teach it to your children. And recite these words when you're at home and when you're on the road all the time, wherever you are, when you lie down and when you wake up, when you, when you get up. It should be on your hand. It should be in your forehead. It should be on the doorposts of your house. It should be on your gates. Everywhere you look, you should get a reminder of it. So that this wholeheartedness should be on the tip of your tongue all the time. It should be uppermost in your mind all the time. You should never lose track of it. And wherever you look, literally, you should see it in the looking. You should hear it in the listening. You should taste it in the tasting. You should be mindful of it all the time. So Judaism invented mindfulness. How about that? Where is the intellectual property they didn't pay <laughs> Jews for mindfulness? You know, I, I was one of the people who uh, created a, this course, uh, med meditation course in, uh, in uh, Google that called Search Inside Yourself. 
And it became really famous. And the guy who hired me and some other people to create it wrote a book, super bestseller book called Search Inside Yourself. And then it was all over Google, all over the world. And then they set up all these institutes, separate institutes. It's like the biggest thing in the world. And somebody <laughs> said to me, how much did you, how many millions did you make from this? I got a lot of good meals. But I didn't invent mindfulness in Google. Judaism invented it. But it's uh, mindfulness with a twist, you know. Judaism, it's not small potatoes mindfulness, you know. In Judaism, mindfulness is not just pay attention all the time to what you're doing or thinking. No. In Judaism, mindfulness is pay attention all the time to what you're really doing and thinking, not just what it looks like you're doing and thinking. In other words, pay attention all the time in all that you're doing and thinking and being to this ineffable something that we call being alive, that nobody knows what it is really. Pay attention to it. It's right in front of you constantly, and it's unbelievable you miss it, but you miss it. So don't miss it. Pay attention to it all the time. So there's other um, famous passages in Shoftim that I want to quickly bring up. The one is the one I think Sylvia mentioned already about the refuge cities. It says, you know, when you enter the land that yud heh has given you, you should set up refuge cities, which are places for someone to go who has committed an innocent offense and they can go to these refuge cities. And they give an example. What is an innocent offense? For example, <clears throat> a man goes into the forest with another man to cut timber, and they start whacking away with their axes, and the head of the axe comes loose and flies off and hits the other guy and kills him. And the family of the deceased person is definitely going to be upset, and they're going to come after that first man who did in fact, kill their relative. So they're going to want to kill him. So this guy, whose axe head flew off, can go to the city of refuge, where he will be guaranteed to be protected, because really and truly, he did not intend to do anything violent. I mean, this is a very obvious thing. He, it was an accident. We know that, right? It's an accident. Who, who would go after a guy who just by accident did something bad? But I don't think this is obvious to everybody. This is actually a sophisticated idea about human beings. There's a whole notion of human nature behind it. <clears throat> we take it as axiomatic. People are responsible for their actions. They choose what they do. People are independent, sacred beings. You don't take a life because of that. But that's not obvious, actually, that human beings are that. Why aren't human beings? Like any animal you kill, certain animals you eat them. But no, we don't. Obviously, I mean, it's shocking, it's horrifying to us to think of human beings as other than this. But Torah 
says it. The Torah creates that. That idea of a human, sacred, who has volition and who is responsible and who therefore must be protected when even though they did something, they didn't intend it. So now we take all this for granted. We call it human rights, universal declaration of human rights from the, from the United Nations. <clears throat> human values recognized all over the world. But that's what's being established here in the land that Yudhei has promised. The other famous passage I want to bring up has to do with warfare. I mean, <clears throat> this land, over and over again it says, this land has been given to you. Thank you for the gift, but wait. <laughs> what kind of gift is it that I have to go and like conquer and go to war to receive this <coughs> gift? This is a gift not given on a silver platter. People have to be kicked out of the land. They have to be defeated and subjugated in order for the Israelites to be able to enjoy this gift that God is giving them. And a lot of what you read about in Shoftim is how that happens. But the idea is that the gift is, yes, you'll have to go into battle and it will be difficult, but you will win. I'm guaranteeing that. Now, you know, I, I think I was telling you that in the parliament of world religions there were lots of events with lots of indigenous people. And uh, it's kind of great, you know. Actually, I remember uh, they were going to have like Columbus Day, 500th anniversary of Columbus Day, which was years ago, decades ago. And all of a sudden they realized Columbus Day. Whoa, you know. <laughs> it's the first time anybody ever, when they were going to roll out a giant thing. And then they realize maybe not such a good idea to celebrate Columbus Day. And now they don't really. I mean, in New York, some people walk down the street and stuff, you know, but not really. Because uh, indigenous peoples now are being recognized the world over as people who, the only people perhaps, who were really stewards of the land they lived on. And they all have stories. And the stories all, almost always say, we were the original people on this land. We've always been on this land. We are the original people. Our sense of identity is wrapped up with this land. I don't know whether anybody was ever an original people anywhere, but in their stories they say so. Our story doesn't say that. God promises that the Israelites will conquer the people who occupy the land. And the people who occupied the land probably weren't the first people there either. They probably conquered somebody else, right? I mean, I think it's, that's not stated, but I think you can assume that. Torah is so messy, so disturbing, so realistic. Um, I'm studying Torah with a friend of mine and a poet friend of mine, and he, he reminded me of this very famous book a long time ago by Eric Auerbach called Mimesis, in which there's a brilliant chapter in there where Auerbach compares the Torah to the Greek uh, Hellenistic epics, you know? And it's a brilliant thing. And he says, you know, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey are really reasonable, clear poems. 
You read them, you understand exactly what's happening. You understand all the characters and their motivations because they often give long speeches where they say why they're doing what they're doing and why they feel how they feel and what they feel. All the details are laid out in beautiful you know, prose or poetry. And the Greeks also have gods. The gods are characters. The gods, though, are not mysterious. They're powerful, but they're not mysterious. You know exactly what's going on in the realm of the gods. But Torah is the opposite. It's very murky, Arbach says. It's very murky, and it's very messy. And you really don't really know what's going on. Like, here's this guy who, at the age of, what, 100 years old, finally has a son. And then God, whatever, however that is, comes along and says, ah, you have to sacrifice your son. No problem. I'll do it. What does that, where does that come from? Nobody, there's no explanation. There's no like, oh, Abraham struggled with this. No struggle. Nothing like that. I mean, maybe all that happened, but it's all left out. That's why all the drashas, you know, add all this spurious stuff that supposedly happened. But Torah is like that. It's mostly not explained. And this God, what does he look like? Not only don't you know, but don't even think you know. What's, what's he thinking? You don't know. Don't even think you know. Right? I mean, it's really very much making a point that you don't really know much about this and we're not saying. And nobody's saying because nobody could say. This is not what the Odyssey is like. However, one thing we do know, it's very, very crucial and very, very important to you, to us. So, we don't know. Let's discuss. <laughs> we discuss forever. Because <laughs> we don't know. Anyway, there's going to be battles and wars involved in occupying this land. Uh, that's why the whole thing is so anxious. And so, I mean, it's very anxious being Jewish, you know, because who's going to conquer next, right? You, you knew that you had to conquer to get where you were. Who's going to conquer next? It's very anxiety-making. The whole proposition here of the promised land is set up in the Torah to be very, very shaky, I think, and very, very fraught. It isn't easy. Somebody said, I think maybe Sylvia, maybe Jeff, maybe Joanna, somebody said, it is not easy being human, and it isn't. Anyway, I'm, not getting, I'm getting around to what I want to say about this. Um, when the Israelites are getting ready to go to battle, Moses is kind of telling them what's going to happen, how they have to do this. When they're getting ready to go to battle, first thing they should do is reflect on the fact that God, the God who, remember, got them out of Egypt by incredible miracles, so this is no slouch of a god. This god is going to ensure that they have victory, so remember that. Go into battle with 
courage and with confidence because it's going to be okay in the end. That's the first thing. But next, right after that, the officials should come forth in front of the army and they should say to the army the following things. Is there anybody here who has built a house but hasn't moved into it yet? Let this person go home, lest he be killed in battle and he doesn't have a chance to move in and somebody else moves in. Is there anybody here who has planted a vineyard and not harvested it? Let this person also go home, lest he be killed in battle and somebody else harvests the vineyard that he planted. Is there anybody here who has been engaged but not yet married? Let this person go home lest he be killed in battle and somebody else marries the person that he was going to marry. Is anybody here frightened, disheartened, discouraged? You also should go home because, you know, you might upset the other soldiers and freak them out. So, it's like they must have written this down and every time they went into battle somebody got up and said all these things and you can imagine, you can be standing there one by one, the people are leaving, probably half the army's gone by now and the other half is ready for, for battle. It's a, it's a good system, I think they should, they should do that in, in armies. Because the ones that are mentioned, all these categories of people, could not possibly be wholehearted like we were saying before, you know. They could not be wholehearted with Yudhe And so they would not be good in this battle. So Torah is saying, you know, actually, you do have to harvest your vineyard, build your house, marry your spouse, because if you don't do those things when you need to do them, you will feel unfulfilled and unhinged. I, I often say this, but I believe that uh, maybe with the exception of Islam, Islam may be the same, but otherwise all the traditions propose that if you're serious about your practice. I mean, if you're really devoted, you're going to give up family, you're going to give up home, you're going to give up earning a living, you're going to give up your creativity, and you're going to become a renunciate monastic, only devoted to your practice. We don't have that option in Judaism. In Judaism, you have to do all those other things. Two. And you have to make all those other things your path. One of the things I always was amazed by, the rabbis of the Talmud, they all had another job. You know? The rabbis now are very spoiled. All they have to do is be rabbis. They don't also have to be shoemakers and tailors and doctors. The Rambam was like a doctor in his spare time, apparently. <laughs> the greatest doctor known in the world at the time was the Rambam. And Judaism is the only tradition that I know of 
in which sex is not considered evil or a distraction, but rather an actual spiritual practice, a mitzvah, an obligation. Since it's a part of life, it must be part of spiritual practice. And now I get to quote one of my dearest friends, Cheryl Jaffe, uh, who was Rabbi Lou's uh, wife for many years, and she's giving a class now someplace, at some, a shul in the East Bay on This Is Real. So she sent me her talks, you know, and they were great. And here, I'm giving you a quote from one of her, this is from her, one of her talks. She says, it pleases me that in Judaism, sex is not a dirty or a sinful thing, but healthy and sacred. Alan loved recounting that passage in the Talmud where a man's sexual obligation to his wife is, is determined according to his profession. For example, a tanner had a low obligation because he smelled bad from all of the tanning. And a sailor also had a low obligation for the obvious fact that he was gone most of the time. The highest obligation was for a Torah scholar. Why? I guess because Torah scholars wrote this piece of Talmud. <laughs> so, all these things that other people think you, are so distracting that you can't possibly do your practice if you have all these things in your life. The Torah says, no, you have to do all these things. That's your practice, too. In the case of the final category, the people who are discouraged or afraid, they also shouldn't go into battle because they're torn. They're not whole. They need to put themselves together. So probably, the Torah doesn't mention this, but they probably all got sent to meditation retreats, <laughs> which is good preparation for going into battle and defeating the people. <laughs> in the land. <laughs> so we do need to take care of ourselves, right? In other words, we're not, of course we're not wholehearted. We're not capable of it. We're scared. We're discouraged. We're divided. We need to take care of ourselves. And part of what, uh, to me, I, I, as I'm getting, the older I get, the more I look at what's going on in the world and in my own life, I think, you know, this whole thing has only ever been about healing. Spiritual practice has only ever been about healing is whole, right? Wholeness. Echad is healing, right? That's what healing means. To heal means to make whole. So we have to take care of ourselves. We have to do all these things. So, um, uh, we, every day we're doing the uh, 27th Psalm and the Shofar, and Nikki is a Thank you for that. You're a great, that gadol at the end, this is very good. You're, you're really, a lot of people who do that, like, they do it, but you, have, you know how to do it, just slow and easy, and it lasts a long time. It's beautiful. And, and I'm thinking of the shofar, because in the World Parliament of Religions, our Elijah Interfaith group did a ceremony called the Climate Repentance Ceremony. It was actually very, very moving. We, in our meetings, we figured out how to do the ceremony, and then we, we did it on the big stage in the giant hall with 10,000 chairs, maybe 200 people sitting in the 10,000 <laughs> chairs. <laughs> um, so we did it, and, and the way they did it, like Thich Nhat Hanh actually 
Thich Nhat Hanh actually has like written a climate repentance ceremony, and that was part of our ceremony. And there were two wonderful, wonderful sisters from Plum Village who were there, and they read, one of them read the lines, and the other one brought a giant bell and struck the bell. So it was really beautiful, very peaceful, you know, nice words in the bell, and peaceful, nice words in the bell. And at the end, Alan blew the shofar with great power, and that was the end of the ceremony. And, and then there was, that was, it was great, you know, to have this, the bell and the quiet, and then it was great. So I, I want to conclude by reading you my, because so, somebody asked me to do this, and so I'm happy to do it. I love, I love reading my own poems like every poet left to their own devices. They wouldn't even talk to you. They would just stand up and read their poems all the time. This is uh, my version of 20, Psalm 27 that we recite every day, usually just the four, a few lines. But I'm going to read you the whole thing. <clears throat> you are my light and my help. Whom should I fear? You are the fortress of my life. Whom should I dread? When the narrow ones gather their strength to devour me, it is they who will stumble and fall. Even if a royal army were camped outside my gate, my heart would not fear. And when they struck out with terrible weapons against me, even then I would trust. And here are the lines that we always chant. One thing I ask for, one thing I hope, to live in your house all the days of my life, to behold your loveliness every morning in the light of your dawn. Till on a doomful day you secure me in your precincts, conceal me within the folds of your covering tent, place me high and safe upon a rock, my head lifted above the engulfing waves, with the joy of my heart I will sacrifice within that billowing shelter, singing and playing my abandonment to you. Hear my voice when I raise it up. Be gracious. Answer me. And speaking with your voice, my heart sang, Seek my presence. I will. Do not hide your glowing face from me. Do not reject me in anger because of my shortcomings. You have always been for me. Don't cast me off now. Don't walk away, my helper, my friend. My mother and father forsake me, but you take me up. Show me the way. 
Guide my steps on the clear path against the ever-present cliffs and thickets. Protect me from the noise of desire and hatefulness, from false words and shouted accusations. If I did not have faith in your rightness, that it would bloom in this living land, it is unthinkable. I wait only for you with strength and good courage. I wait only for you. So we say that, all of that every, every day. You could see the Elul application of that. We need to have that kind of confidence really to be human beings and not stop paying attention to what we are. We need to have that kind of confidence and strength. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. You are such kind listeners. I, I, when I, I used to teach school, the children don't listen like that. <laughs> Throwing spitballs, you know. No, nobody has this kind of privilege, really, as we do, to be, to be listened to in this loving way. It's, it's not something that any of us take for granted, believe me. Thank you. Have a good dinner.